Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. And today, it's all about the Democrats and their relationship with big tech. This was 2011. Um, sorry, I'm kind of nervous. We have the President of the United States here. My name is Barack Obama, and I'm the guy who got Mark to wear a jacket and tie. Thank you. <laughs> and in fact, if you'd like, Mark, we can take our jackets off. Okay. No, that's good. Whew, that's better, isn't it? Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg with President Barack Obama at Facebook headquarters in Palo Alto, California. And this was Wednesday. It should be clear why we have serious concerns about your plan. So, Mr. Zuckerberg, yes or no, is it still your policy to ban hate groups? My understanding is yes. So you won't take down lies or you will take down lies? I think it's just a pretty simple yes or no. Congresswoman. Mr. Zuckerberg, yes or no, does this meet your community standards? I'm not sure I'm in a position right now to... I I don't think that's a hard question. You plan on doing no fact-checking on political ads? Our our policy is that we do not fact-check politicians' speech. Would you be willing to act as a content monitor? I'm not sure that it would best serve our community for me to spend that much time. Reclaiming my time. Do you see a potential problem here with a complete lack of fact-checking on political advertisements? Well, Congresswoman, I think lying is bad. My have times changed. That, of course, was Mark Zuckerberg testifying in front of the House Financial Services Committee this week. The hearing's focus was on Facebook's plan for a cryptocurrency. But let's be honest, Zuckerberg can't go anywhere these days without being asked about transparency and trust. It's clear that since the 2016 election, big tech has fallen out of favor with the Democrats. We have a massive crisis in our democracy with the way these tech companies are being used. You get to be the umpire in the baseball game or you get to have a team. They have an outsized influence on people's perceptions about issues. We need to set very tough, very clear, transparent rules. Start talking about this as a pro-competition issue. It's time to fight back. And while many of us are also frustrated by the power and influence these tech companies have on our lives and our economy, they are an inescapable part of it. Be honest, when was the last time you used Facebook, Google, Amazon? The last time I used Facebook and Google was today. I checked my Facebook feed and updated my profile picture. Today, I was on Facebook posting a picture of my husband. I do use all three platforms and used them yesterday. I used Amazon today. I use Facebook, Amazon, and Google pretty much all the time. Pretty much on a daily basis. Currently looking at posts. Um, I use Facebook daily to catch up on what friends are doing and use Amazon like for Halloween candy. That's what I thought. I'm actually reading these words from a Google Doc right now. These big tech companies are embedded in the social and economic fabric of our country. They've bought up the competition, they control our data, and have few government regulations. But how exactly did we get here? I think it's a great question and uh, a classic American story of premature triumphalism. That's Tim Wu. He's the author of The Curse of Bigness and a professor at Columbia University. You know, about uh, 15 years ago, the Internet was held up as the model of the competitive capitalist market where 
anyone could, with a shoebox or something, open a company and uh, or a blog or anything and, and take on the giants. And, you know, nothing mattered anymore. Size, scale, uh, big and small was meaningless. But around the turn of the decade and accelerating uh, through the 2010s, the old economic forces reasserted themselves. Scale did start to matter. Brand mattered. And the accumulation of data in a few places mattered. The problem was that the, the laws and the enforcement of the laws was still predicated on the idea that the internet was a Valhalla of perfect competition, that it was competition is only a click away, that there was no reason to be worried about anything because, well, even if Facebook bought a competitor, Facebook might be gone in a year anyway, so uh, better to, to stay out. And so I think we sort of acquiesced in the monopolization of the tech industries based on this rosy premise that somehow they'd overcome the basic rules of economics. Is that the reason then why the normal regulatory bodies did not jump on this sooner to start asking the questions that we're asking now? Uh, yeah, I'd point particularly to a failure of merger control, the, the system for preventing companies from buying their competitors. In this sort of rosier view that everything was fine and this was the perfect industry, everybody somehow became okay with over three or 400 buyouts of <laughs> companies. There's been a massive wave of, of mergers. I think uh, Standard Oil in the 19th century is, is the relevant comparison. So yeah, I think that everybody sort of stood down for a, a while and hoped that the invisible hand would fix it all. And that's how we got here today. Did they think also that, well, let me say it a different way. Uh -huh. Did they maybe not understand what was happening? I mean, we know the standard oil comparison, or if this were sort of a traditional company or industry, right? If this were a mm -hmm. mining company, if this were a grocery supermarket chain, whatever it is, we, most people understand how those things work. Technology, well, that that's really not for especially people of a certain age, not something they're comfortable with. No, I don't actually think that's true. I mean, I guess I was in government <laughs> during then, and so it would be not they but me as one of the people. Um, I don't think we didn't understand these companies. I think we were actually more generally living in an era of uh, abandonment of antitrust in particular. Um, you know, you mentioned supermarkets and uh, other industries. We also allowed everybody else to merge, too. I mean, you know, this is a period uh, over which AT&T came back, over which we allowed the airlines to merge down to three airlines. Uh, we allowed insurance to, to consolidate. So actually, tech was part of a much larger uh, permissiveness across the economy and even through administrations that just allowed um, mergers and consolidation of industry with a lot of without a lot of control. So actually, I don't think I don't think it's right that tech got special treatment. Uh, I think everybody was allowed to merge as they liked. This went across, the, this is the Clinton administration, this is the Bush administration, yeah. this is the Obama administration, right? This wasn't just That's one right. party. I think there was a rosy view of tech. I don't think, you know, based on my own experience, that, you know, the stereotype of 80-year-olds and you know, can't understand tech and what's going on here and what's my grandson playing with. 
you know, I, I don't, uh, you know, that might, that's actually not a bad description of Congress, but um, I don't think in the administrations that was exactly what it was. They're smart people. There was just an incredible faith that everything would work out by itself, a commitment to sort of a laissez-faire and a tendency towards inaction uh, that was across the economy, frankly, and has led in a lot of directions. You know, a lot of our inequality problems, I think, also stem from that attitude. But I don't think it's limited to tech. I just think tech was a beneficiary of it. When we go back in time, I mean, the idea of breaking up, this, this is, I think, a really important point because it's not as if government hasn't taken on monopolies in the recent past. I was around for the breakup of AT&T. You had the Microsoft antitrust case. So there was a will to do these things. We know what the process looks like. So you're, you're making the argument not that we, as the American regulatory system, can't regulate big tech, but just that they chose not to. That's exactly right. The argument you'll hear sometimes that the law is too slow to keep up with tech. It just moves so fast what you can do. I, I think those are very specious arguments and, in fact, uh, conceal a certain anti-democratic impulse. You know, the fastest moving industries uh, 100 years ago were the oil industry and, and the telephone industry. And, and you know, we uh, broke up those industries, especially oil back then. Uh, Cinema was a new and fast-changing industry that was broken up. In, in, and I'm talking about the early 20th century. So every industry, every generation says, oh, you know, we're new, we're different, um, you can't really uh, keep up with us, the law doesn't. But, you know, the law is ancient. <laughs> it relies on a monopoly of force, and uh, that hasn't become irrelevant. Let's just put it that way. And even within recent memory, as you point out, Microsoft was subjected to a very serious antitrust uh, suit by the government. And uh, once again, everyone said, oh, you know, they move too fast. Software is too virtual. And uh, well, it just wasn't true. The other argument that gets made is, well, unlike AT&T, for example, breaking up AT&T, if you quote unquote, break up big tech, you are opening up the market to the Chinese. And the Chinese are going to come in with their technology. They're already prepared to do this, which has you know, nefarious actors involved, specifically the Chinese government. And that is the reason that maybe, yes, some regulation, but breaking it up would be harmful to American security. Do you buy that argument? Uh, I am very resistant to that form of fear mongering. I uh, don't think that the national security of the United States depends on Facebook, uh, Google, and Amazon being uh, in their current form. The same arguments were made back in the 70s and 80s with Japan. And the idea was that if you messed with AT&T or IBM, that Japan would come to rule the universe. Well, we uh, did break up AT&T. We put IBM through the ringer. And actually, America got stronger from that process. Its tech industries became uh, more vigorous, more vibrant, and ultimately left Japan in the dust. So I think America does better when it doesn't choose a couple national champions and say, you know, these companies are special. They're, they're immune from, from government, uh, maybe immune from competition. They're our favored little children. That is the way to lose to the Chinese. Let's just put it that way. The more that I sort of dig into this stuff and listen to people like you and others who are thinking 10, 20, 50 years down the road, 
the more worried I am that we're going to end up in some sort of dystopian future <laughs> where all of our information is controlled maybe by one or two nefarious types of people, leaders, whatever. And um, it looks kind of scary out there. Should I be this scared or should I be more optimistic about what the future could look like? No, I I think there's reason to be scared. Uh, The history of the 20th century has some harsh lessons about the possibility of behavioral control and um, effective use of propaganda and misuse of, of information, both to control a population, but also to, to uh, manipulate it um, in, in ways that are truly terrifying. Uh, I think that no society should ever be completely calm about the possibility of, uh, of centralized power with uh, access, especially exclusive access to certain forms of information. So yeah, we're talking about big stakes here and you know, can get lost in a conversation about whether you know, Amazon is treating its vendors right or something, which you know, is a smaller thing. But the big stakes and the big questions here are all about the power that comes from control of information. And we've seen terrifying things done with that before and I hope we can somehow collectively prevent terrifying things being done in the future. Not a completely reassuring answer there from Tim Wu on that, but there are people working on ways to rein in big tech. I always supported American innovation. The innovation that came around from Facebook and Twitter and Google and Amazon, they're great American success stories. That's Mark Warner, U.S. Senator from Virginia. Senator Warner is no stranger to the tech industry. In the 1980s, he worked in telecom, and he was an investor in numerous technology companies. Today, he's one of a growing number of Democrats who are critical of how much power big tech has amassed. I feel like, particularly through the early 2000s, that we became almost such tech enthusiasts, and we saw all of the good side of these new communities that were being created and new platforms, and I think kind of tech got a pass. Senator Warner isn't ready to break up these tech companies the way Senator Elizabeth Warren wants to, but he does have a lot of ideas on how to rein them in. Fourteen months ago, I laid out a white paper that laid out about 20 different ideas on how we would um, put some guardrails around social media. And what I've been working on over the last year is taking those ideas and turning them into legislation and I'm proud to say all the legislation so far that I've introduced is bipartisan. So let me not go through all of them, but quickly kind of go through some of the ideas on how we can make consumers more informed and bring a little more transparency to the process. One area is where privacy, um, and the Europeans have already moved. There's others working on this issue in, in Congress to make sure that we have some basic privacy rights as we deal with these platform companies. That privacy is necessary but not sufficient. So I've got legislation, and let me quickly line out three bills. One that says we ought to have a right to know what data is being collected about each of us and how much that data is worth. Idea number two, um, legislation bipartisan interviews just this week with Dick Blumenthal from Connecticut and Josh Hawley from Missouri that says – If we're tired about how we're treated on Facebook, we should be able to easily move all of our data from Facebook to a new company 
if a new competitor comes in. Because right now, you can do it, but it's extraordinarily difficult to do. So we brought an idea that used to be from the telephone industry. Used to be years ago, if you wanted to move from long, one long-distance carrier to another, it was really difficult until we legislated number portability. So this legislation I'm put forward would have data portability. And along with data portability, you've got to have what's called interoperability. So if you move to a new company, you can still talk to your friends on Facebook. And again, the idea of interoperability is think about email. One of the geniuses of email is if you've got a Gmail account, you can still email to somebody with an Outlook account. Totally different system, but there's interoperability between systems. We need that in social media. Third legislation, and this is one that was a little more challenging for people to get their heads around, but what Facebook, Google, Twitter, some of these companies do is they are very manipulative on how they kind of get your data from you using, frankly, techniques that are called in the industry dark patterns where, you know, and you see this on pages where you can only click yes or learn more. You can never click no, or you can never find the unsubscribe button, or you've got bright flashing arrows pointing at, you know, at click here. We need to set some industry standards on these kind of consumer manipulation activities. These are all steps in the right direction. I think we're going to need as well um, legislation that give us all the right to know whether we're being communicated with by a human being versus a bot or a machine. There's nothing wrong with being communicated with by a machine, but we ought to have that knowledge, particularly as we start to judge what we should believe or not believe. Back in the late 90s, when we set up the rules for social media, we basically said that companies would have no responsibility for their content. Maybe that made sense in the late 90s. It's called Section 230. But today in 2019, when 65% of Americans get some or all their news from Facebook and Google, and that news is curated, they do determine what you get, maybe they ought to have some level of responsibility the same way NPR or Fox News or others has as, uh, as media companies. So uh, these are all areas of debate, but we ought to start with the transparency and the pro-competitive items of the legislation I've already got out there. Let's go to the the second piece here about being able to take your data portability in the same way if I want to switch from Verizon to AT&T, I can take my phone number, I take all my data. There we go. I understand how that works. Seems to me part of the challenge is there are no competitors to Google. There are no competitors to Facebook. So I can say, well, I have all my data, but there are no other platforms like it. So is this really an issue that's much more about antitrust And this idea of these companies as monopolies, Amazon buying up pretty much anything uh, in its competitive space, Facebook buying up Instagram, that that's where Congress should be putting its biggest efforts. I think that's one point of view. Before I go to the breakup mode, uh, which might simply cede the field uh, to the Chinese companies or others, I'd like to see if we could introduce more competition in the space. But you're right, right now, who would ever get to scale or who would ever, if a large enterprise tried to launch a competitor to Facebook when it was virtually impossible to kind of move move your data easily and still be able to talk to people who remain on Facebook. So uh, you use the, um, the number portability issue, AT&T to Verizon. You know, you've got to have both that data portability, but you also have to have the interoperability component to see if there could actually be some competition in the field. Do you think there will be before we hit really the heart of campaign 2020, so let's say by earlier in the spring of 2020, do you think there will be some rules of the road 
regarding tech companies and what they can do with our data by then? I sure hope so. I think there is a increasing probability that a privacy legislation, which is probably the area that's been most discussed, there'll be legislation. My hope is that we can then add some of these pro-competition, pro-transparency items to to that mix. I think that would be good for consumers. I think it would be good for for gaining more competition. And I think it would be good uh, for making sure, uh, particularly as it touches our democracy and how foreign and other entities are trying to manipulate us, that it would be good for the integrity of our process. Because remember, end of the day, the bad guys, they don't need to actually change votes. They just need to pit us against each other or have us as Americans lose faith in the integrity of our process. And one of the things that we've seen, uh, I like to point out what If you add up all the money Russia spent interfering in our elections in 2016, the Brexit vote and the French presidential elections, it's less than the cost of one new F-35 airplane. So it is both cheap and effective for foreign governments to try to mess with us. Senator Warner, thank you so much for talking with me. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Amy. At the beginning of the show, we played clips of President Obama heaping love on Facebook. That wasn't such an unusual thing for a Democrat to do back in that era. Since 2016, of course, that relationship has grown much cooler. So I thought the best way to see how Democrats are navigating their new status with tech, I'd check in with the Democrat who represents Silicon Valley in Congress, Representative Ro Khanna. Khanna got there by defeating a longtime Democratic incumbent in 2016. That means he's only been in Washington since 2017, just as the tide started to change. I asked him about the adversarial nature of the relationship between Silicon Valley and Washington, D.C. I would say it's tense. I think there is a recognition of the promise of technology in terms of advances in medicine, in terms of advances in communication, in terms of advances in dissemination of information. But there's also a concern about the concentration of power in these companies and whether they are sufficiently creating jobs and opportunities in places left behind, whether they are protecting privacy, uh, whether they're adhering to antitrust law, uh, whether they're being manipulated by foreign interference. So the complexity of the relationship is uh, far starker. In, In the 1990s and early 2000s, I would say the relationship was one of unambiguous admiration, and that has changed. So was it one thing that happened that turned this from a, as you pointed out, one of admiration to one of adversarial. It was almost like a light switch was flipped. And especially among Democrats, you started to hear so much more criticism about all those industries. I think it was the 2016 election. I mean, partly the sense that these platforms were manipulated in certain cases by foreign actors that they were used to spread propaganda and lies, that they were used to suppress uh, minority votes. So that gave a lot of Democrats pause. The Cambridge Analytica scandal was a further concern that people's data may have been uh, used to uh, prop up a a candidate who they didn't agree with, and and that felt like a violation uh, for many individuals. And then finally, I think the 2016 election open people's eyes to a large part of the country that had been left out of the technology revolution and innovation. The, you know, Donald Trump, the parts of the country that he carried were one third of GDP. So there was this growing concern that uh, economic opportunity had been concentrated geographically 
and that we had not done enough to unleash the promise of technology in many places that had been left out. You also are a backer, a supporter of Bernie Sanders' bid for the presidency, and um, he has made uh, some inroads here on the idea of breaking up big tech. Again, many of those companies or people who work for those companies headquartered in your district. Do you agree with him on this? I believe we need stronger antitrust enforcement, but I don't think uh, any candidate should prescribe what the solution is. And I think some of the solutions need to be nuanced. Let me give you an example. Uh, There was a company in Michigan that was selling t-shirts and they couldn't start a brick and mortar store. So Amazon actually helped them and they developed a successful online business. That shows the promise and value of uh, Amazon. But then Amazon started to copy those Mm T-shirts and sell them as Amazon shirts, and now that T-shirt business faces a lot of hardship. So the solution to this is not to say, well, let's not have Amazon. The solution is to say, well, we need strong antitrust laws that say Amazon shouldn't be able to unfairly compete on its own platform. It shouldn't be in a neutral platform being able to copy competitors or undersell competitors. Like that, I think there are laws that we can have modeled on the Microsoft case that would strengthen antitrust law without hurting our innovation. Do you believe that Facebook has broken antitrust laws? I don't know if they have broken the laws as currently interpreted. What I would say, though, is that uh, there should have been far more scrutiny on the merger with WhatsApp and Instagram. It's a, mm. it's a tragedy that that merger didn't face scrutiny. Maybe if they hadn't been allowed to have that merger, you would have seen more competition with Facebook. And I would be very, very concerned about future mergers in in large mergers, especially horizontal mergers that were restricting competition. And the FTC and Justice Department uh, should really view future mergers with great skepticism. So why did they drop the ball there? Well, first, I think the market wasn't clearly defined. I don't think it was clear to folks that uh, WhatsApp would be a competitor to a social media company like Facebook. It turns out that uh, it could have been a competitor. And there were arguments in sense that, well, Instagram, you know, that's something different. And maybe the acquisition from Facebook is what allows startups to be funded. I mean, a lot of startups uh, have the their exit strategies to be acquired by these companies. And so there was an argument saying if you were to stop the acquisitions or mergers, you would actually dry up a startup investment. But I think that the equities now are the, the other way, that uh, these companies shouldn't be allowed to continue to acquire particularly competitors. And uh, we've learned that there should be more scrutiny. I sort of see the Democratic Party falling into two sides here, one on the Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders side, much more interested in really making these companies break up versus other Democrats, many of whom see the promise of technology and see themselves as more pro-business Democrats. Are you there to be that bridge between those two groups? Do you see anything like that? Well, what I see is that Our country, our world is facing a technology revolution. We're in globalization, and we have to figure out how do we prepare a workforce and an economy that's going to prosper given these changes, and how do we bring that prosperity to communities left behind? I still believe in the promise of technology, but we need three things. One, we need to share that prosperity with rural America, with minority communities, and create job opportunities 
in uh, some of these places. And I worked to do that in Jefferson, Iowa, in Paintsville, Kentucky, in Beckley, West Virginia, in South Carolina. The second thing is we need thoughtful regulation. I mean, we need people who understand technology and can make sure Americans that their privacy will be protected online and that their that their antitrust concerns will be addressed. But I don't think you can have politicians deny the future. I mean, Luddite politics uh, usually does not work historically. What people are looking for is a thoughtfulness about how we embrace the future. Is there a way in which this rift between Democrats and big tech can be breached? Or is this something that is only going to grow bigger and deeper? Absolutely, I think it can be bridged. What we need tech leaders to do is to be affirmative in creating jobs and opportunities in communities uh, across this country. I wish Amazon, instead of announcing their headquarters in Northern Virginia or in New York, had picked Nebraska or Oklahoma. Uh, Imagine if Facebook, instead of having to pay a $5 billion fine, uh, had taken a billion dollars and invested it in uh, rural scholarships for STEM and in uh, rural newspapers and in minority communities uh, for internships. They would be seen in a very different place. So, What I think collectively is that we were so focused as a country on innovation and economic growth, and it's a good thing. I mean, a lot of good came out of that. I mean, Google, uh, Facebook, uh, Apple, these are still uh, companies that, in my view, have uh, contributed valuable products. And a lot of the world's population was lifted out of poverty, which is a good thing. But we were neglectful about the deindustrialization of our own country, about the stagnation of wages since 1979, about communities being left out. And we have to be far more intentional, far more purposeful about providing the opportunities of the future, the jobs of the future uh, to the communities that have been left out. Congressman Rokana represents California's 17th district. While some colleges ramped up police presence on campus, others responded to protest against Israel's war in Gaza by giving students a seat at the table. I'm Kai Wright, and on the next Notes from America, meet a young negotiator from Brown University. We'll explore what divestment actually means and how views of victory in this movement vary depending on where you sit. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. It's Politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway. It's not just the 2020 Democratic candidates who are upset about these tech companies and their growing power. There are actually a bunch of separate antitrust investigations going on. Cecilia Kong is a tech reporter at The New York Times, and she came in to help us untangle them. So on the antitrust front, there are so many investigations going on right now of Facebook and of Google. There is there is an investigation at the DOJ of Google. There is an investigation among almost all, actually 50 states' attorneys generals um, of Google. And at the FTC, there's an investigation of Facebook. At the DOJ, there's an investigation wow. of Facebook. And at the states' attorneys generals are also investigating Facebook. They're all looking at whether the companies are abusing their monopoly power, and if, and in the case of the FTC, if the mergers that Facebook has had in the past of what's with um, acquiring WhatsApp and Instagram were acquired in a way that have now 
shown evidence of being anti-competitive. Those are going to take some time to actually play out, really. I think there's a lot of attention to that, but I don't think you should expect any action in the next year. Um, Those are kind of coordinated. Um, The state's attorney generals have come on in to see the FTC and DOJ officials. On the regulatory front, which is a little bit different, you're seeing privacy regulation already at play in the state of California and other states like Washington State. And you're seeing nothing, frankly, happen on the federal level when it comes to privacy regulation. And that's another way to really oversee and to try to to try to um, contain the power right now of these companies. Um, on the federal level, it's just nothing's moving in Congress. So you're not seeing any legislation. But you will see California enact its own law starting Janu- January 2020. And you may see some behavior change by these companies. At least they'll be What's the new ways. law in California? Yeah, it's a California um, Consumer Privacy Protection Act, CC. PPA. And it is a law that will do a few things. It looks a little bit like the European laws, which are the only real global standard right now, but it does some things even further. It allows you as a consumer to tell a company, I want to know all of my data that you've collected. I want to know everything that you've collected about me, and I want to delete that data. It has some laws on age requirements for Facebook, Google, and other tech companies having to ask consumers for permission to collect their data. They actually raise that, that, that age to 16 as opposed to 12, which is the federal law. So it's stricter in many ways. And that will go into effect in January 2020. And in the, at that point, what happens is it's not like that's only going to pertain to California companies. It's going to basically blanket the rest of the nation and all American um, users of the internet will essentially be protected by this kind of a law. Because it will be too hard for Facebook or these other companies to say, we're just going to segment out California. That's right. And not have the rest of the country. That's have right. To do this. Yeah. And there's a really interesting movement right now on the federal level for these companies to lobby for a privacy law on the federal level that stops any states from being able to enact their laws. Mm-hmm. So this mm-hmm. is a, you know, one of the cases where that's the advantage is that that's the only way they want, reason why they want regulation because they want something that's a little bit weaker and that would stop California. I also spoke with Senator Warner, um, who seems somewhat optimistic about legislation that he's putting forward. He's gotten bipartisan support. Um, Do you think that anything that he and uh, Senator Josh Hawley have been putting together might be able to make it somewhere through this thicket by the time (laughs) we hit 2020? I know. I hate to sound like such a mm, downer. It's, it's okay. such a downer, but, I, know, but I, no. I just think in this Congress, it's yeah. so hard to get anything through. There is bipartisan concern about the power of these companies and how they're behaving and how they, and whether there needs to be new regulations of these companies. And I think there is bipartisan agreement that to some degree, yes. Um, and Josh Hawley has been a big advocate of, on the Republican side of, of regulations, many different kinds of regulations. And so does Senator Warner. I think it's just going to be really hard. And, uh, and the reason why, and I'll give you an example for why I believe that to be true. Right after the election, Warner, Senator Warner, um, the late John McCain, Senator John McCain, as well as um, Amy Klobuchar, the senator from uh, Minnesota, who's now presidential candidate, they all introduced a bill that would require all internet companies that receive political ads, that, that place political ads, to disclose who's financing these ads. And this was all in a response to the concern that so, that Russians basically bought ads on Facebook ahead of 2016. So this was supposed to provide some sunlight, some disclosure as to just simply like who's buying the ads, make it transparent. That bill itself was introduced two years ago, three years, almost two years ago. 
it has not moved at all. If Elizabeth Warren were to to win the nomination, win the presidency, she has said in the campaign, obviously, that she wants to break up big tech. What kind of power would she have as president to do something like that? Well, she gets to pick the AG. <laughs> she gets to pick the attorney general at the DOJ. She gets to put folks into the regulatory agencies that are of... Um, um, that oversee these issues of the FTC and the DOJ. She has enormous influence over this because she will set the agenda. Right now in the Trump administration, Republican administration, there is already interest in in um, antitrust and big tech. So this is not just a democratic thing. Mm-hmm. Right now, as we said, the, the leaders of the DOJ and the FTC are Republicans appointed by President Trump, and they are also pursuing their own investigations. I think you'll see under a Warren administration, if she were elected, a a more concerted and a more aggressive push to break up the companies. And she's been very specific with all big, all four big tech companies, why they need to be broken up and how they need to be broken up and how each company is different. So she's deep in it. She's deep in the weeds on each of these companies and why she thinks that and how she thinks they should be broken up. What do the folks in leadership in these tech companies believe is going to happen? I mean, how realistic do they are they taking these pushes either the, yeah. to break them up or to see some sort of regulation one way or the other? I can speak to Facebook mm-hmm. because there was a a really intriguing audio recording that was leaked by The Verge. He was asked about Senator Warren and if she were elected, how would he, you know, what would he do? And he said, um, you know, I mean, if she gets elected president, then I would, I would bet that we will have a legal challenge and I would bet that we will win the legal challenge. He's absolutely determined to make it as difficult as possible for any law enforcement agency to break up his company. He's merging the data between the three biggest apps, which is Facebook itself, WhatsApp, and Instagram. So he's scrambling the egg, if you will, as much as possible so that it's very difficult to unscramble and make into three eggs again. Look, at the end of the day, if someone's going to try to threaten something that existential, you go to the back and you fight. We are seeing action that shows how scared he is. And this goes with every company. They're totally terrified. Cecilia Kong is tech reporter at The New York Times. Amazon came online in 1995 under the stewardship of its current CEO, Jeff Bezos. What started as a way for people to buy books online transformed into one of the largest e-commerce operations in the world. Today, Bezos is one of the richest people in the U.S. with a net worth of more than $100 billion. In the years since, Amazon expanded beyond just selling things online to distributing their own products. They've also expanded to include original shows on their streaming service. And yes, there is shrimp in the egg rolls. And have sold millions of personal voice assistants that sit in many American homes. Alexa, dim the lights. And Bezos' reach goes even further. The Washington Post has been sold to Amazon founder Jeff Bezos. Amazon to buy Whole Foods. This is a game changer. This is it. This is what everybody thought could happen. They will now dominate food within the next two years. But while getting your groceries from Whole Foods delivered via Amazon Prime might be incredibly convenient for you, Amazon's business model has been called into question by many, including several presidential candidates. Companies like Amazon, trillion-dollar tech companies paying literally zero in taxes while they're closing 30% of our stores. 500,000 Americans are sleeping out on the street. And yet companies like Amazon that made billions in profits did not pay one nickel in federal income tax. 
I'm not willing to give up and let a handful of monopolists dominate our economy and our democracy. The organization's spectacular growth was aided by a lack of regulation and today stands accused of destroying local retail. These same criticisms have been leveled against other tech companies. So how is it that Amazon got so big and why did we let them? Joining me is Charles Duhigg. He's a journalist and author who just published an in-depth piece for The New Yorker titled, Is Amazon Unstoppable? I think it's really been building for a couple of years and has really exploded into view this year, right? And in particular, what we've seen is that Amazon, surprisingly, has become somewhat of a punching bag in the Democratic debates of presidential hopefuls. If you'll remember, in the first presidential debate, a number of the candidates, not just Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, but also Andrew Yang, who is himself a tech entrepreneur, um, all sort of went after Amazon as this embodiment of things that they, they see as being wrong with capitalism and troubling about um, taxation. And so I think this exploded into view, but I think it's bigger than just Amazon. I think what we're really seeing is a widespread reassessment of the role that big tech plays in our lives right now and what it tells us about how our economy and how contemporary capitalism works. And this is pretty typical. One of the things that you see throughout history is that every time there is an technological revolution or an economic revolution, there are some companies that are poised to to take advantage of that. And oftentimes we welcome them into our lives and we celebrate them because they make our lives better. Standard Oil is a great example of this. Before Standard Oil became the monopolist that it was, it was eventually broken up by the government. It was the company that brought light to people's homes because for decades, centuries, we had to use whale oil to light our homes at night. And then Standard Oil, essentially through technological innovation, figured out how to produce kerosene inexpensively enough that anyone could light up their home in the evening. So to your point, like we see this in history where, yes, the big get bigger and there's a backlash. But this seemed to happen much more quickly than I think Democrats were prepared for? Is that fair to say? I think it just happened very quickly for sort of the establishment. And I think there's a couple of reasons why. I think, first of all, the election of Donald Trump obviously creates a lot of um, cultural upheaval. And so there's a there's a real desire to try and figure out how did this happen among people whom are somewhat aghast that it did happen. And, and certainly one of the places that they they ought to look is to technology, right? One of the reasons why Trump was surprisingly successful and unexpectedly successful is because his campaign made much better use of Facebook and digital advertising than other firms did. And as we now know, because there there was some foreign interference, which is obviously against the law and a terrible thing. And so that, that shines a spotlight on tech to begin with. But equally, you know, I think that the conversation around economic inequality has really reached a critical point. And one of the things that has been driving economic inequality is the growth of the tech industry. I think it really drives home for people that a fundamental economic and cultural transformation has occurred, where it has winners and losers. And the losers, very understandably, are saying, we don't think this is fair. We think more attention should be paid to us. And so they blame 
the folks around them and the people to blame are the establishment politicians, right? Which helps explain the rise and success of Donald Trump and other populists like him. But also they look around and they say, we want, we blame the most powerful companies and the most powerful companies right now are almost all tech companies. And so it's very natural for us to say, look, something seems like it isn't working. We ought to reevaluate what the rules are that are allowing some people to thrive so thoroughly and other people to feel like they can't possibly get a leg up. Charles, how fair is this criticism, though, that economic inequality, the frustration that Americans are having about stagnant wages, is really should fall primarily at the feet of tech and technology? I don't know if it's universally fair to put the blame for this at the feet of the tech industry. But I'm also not certain that asking whether it's fair or not is even the right question. Because the truth of the matter is, when someone is out of work, or when someone can only get a series of gigs, or when someone is working for a company that is using technology to to give them shifts that they only have 30 minutes prior warning that the shift is going to happen. And it's very carefully only giving them 29 hours a week. So they never qualify as a full-time employee or they're working in a factory and what they're doing is being tracked from second to second. So there's never an opportunity to kind of like, you know, catch your breath or to have a, a bad, a bad day or a bad week. They don't care whether it is fair to be blaming Jeff Bezos or Mark Zuckerberg. They don't care if it's fair to be blaming the tech industry. They just want things to get better. And one of the clearest avenues for trying to make things better is to start regulating a sector of the economy, a huge sector of the economy, a huge industry that until now has not really had a great deal of regulation around it. From your reporting, how realistically did Bezos and those around him take the possibility that there was going to be this backlash? As you said, if you study history at all, you know that as you become bigger, there's going to be more scrutiny and potentially more regulation. I think when anyone's in like the uh, the fantastic ball of the Gilded Age, no <laughs> one ever looks around and says, you know what? we really shouldn't be in tuxedos. <laughs> no one who's enjoying the Gilded Age recognizes the Gilded, that it's the Gilded Age. So I think that it is clearly true that Bezos and Zuckerberg and the, the Google guys, that, that, that all of these folks have thought, been thinking hard about antitrust for a number of years. I don't think that they expected to be the enemies. And and I think it's catching everyone by surprise. And it feels very unjust to the executives that I talk to. A lot of the executives I talk to say, look, I've spent my entire life trying to build a great company. We have all these customers who love us, who use our products all the time. And now they're telling me that the things that made me successful and made us successful, that we ought to be ashamed for that. Like that doesn't seem fair at all. And so I think they are caught off guard by how visceral and sudden these attacks have become and how much criticism they're now seeing. I think, I think you see that in, in Zuckerberg's um, congressional testimony, right? In the speech that he gave at Georgetown saying, saying, look, like, we don't think we have anything to apologize for. And we welcome regulation, which is a little disingenuous, right? They welcome the kind of regulation that they want, not necessarily the regulation that's going to that's gonna come. Charles Duhigg, thank you so much for taking the time and talking with me about this. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. That's all for us today. Here's one more thing from me. 
In many ways, the story of big tech is a familiar one in American history. New technology comes into the marketplace, a handful of people figure out how to monetize it, those same people end up hoarding the money and power to themselves. The public gets frustrated, laws get written to address the inequities, and we move on. In the case of tech, it took the election of Donald Trump in 2016, an event that many believe was made possible because of Facebook's failure to stop nefarious foreign actors from infiltrating the site, to sever the political establishment's love affair with the industry. Throw in the 2017 tax cut legislation that benefited big corporations like Amazon, and you have a big old Democratic Party revolt. Meanwhile, Republicans who were always wary of social media platforms, arguing that they silenced conservative voices, were happy to pile on the criticism of Facebook. And of course, President Trump, who's no fan of the Washington Post, likes to accuse Jeff Bezos of using his ownership of the paper to benefit his company financially. In some ways, then, all the ingredients are there for Washington to usher in some serious changes to the way the industry works. But even if something gets done, I wonder if it's already too late. Big tech not only has lots of money and influence, but they have something even more powerful. Data. Our data that we willingly hand over every time we post a picture on Facebook, tag our friends on Instagram, or place an order on Amazon. Sure, we can change the way that these businesses operate and are regulated, but our data is already out there in the universe. Getting it all back is like trying to unscramble eggs. This week's show was produced by Amber Hall and Patricia Jacob, engineering and sound design by Jay Cowett and Vince Fairchild. Meg Dalton is our digital editor. David Gable is our administrative assistant, and our executive producer is Deirdre Debke. And of course, call us anytime at 8778-MY-TAKE or send us a tweet. I'm at Amy E. Walter. The show is at The Takeaway. Thanks so much for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. <laughs>